Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Buffy and the Art of Story, Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you love creating stories, or just taking them apart to see how they work, you are in the right place. Today, we're talking about Season 6, Episode 3, Afterlife, where a demon Buffy's friends think she brought back from hell torments everyone and threatens Buffy's life. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story expert, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. Along with a breakdown of afterlife, I'll talk today about plot points and protagonist questions that make this episode more of a continuation of a story than a standalone, why any monster you write needs rules, and whether the demon here follows any, hints the writers weave in to tell us that Buffy is hiding things from her friends, and the many seeds Afterlife sows for season-long character and relationship arcs. But I will only talk about spoilers at the end when I get to foreshadowing, and I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Afterlife aired the first time on October 9, 2001. It was written by Jane Espenson and directed by David Solomon. Every story should start with an opening conflict to draw the viewers or readers in. Sometimes it relates to the main story, sometimes not. Here it picks up exactly where Bargaining Part 2 left off. Tara, Anya, Xander, and Willow walk through that alley. I should say hurry through that alley worrying that they don't know where Buffy went, reassuring themselves that it really was Buffy they encountered. Xander tells them not to worry about the fires and danger around them. He says his senses are primed for danger. And then three demons on motorcycles turn into the alley right behind him and race through the group, scaring him half to death. This start in the alley supports the comments that Marty Noxon and David Fury made in the DVD commentary about Bargaining Parts 1 and 2 that they saw those two episodes plus Afterlife as almost one story arc because while this is certainly conflict start it does have the feel of picking up in the middle of the story there is a lot though that catches us up if it's been a while or even if you had not seen those episodes that conversation about worrying if it was really Buffy. And now Anya says at least the demons almost hit Xander on the way out of town. And he responds that with their leader gone, they're making with the big skedaddle. So we know there is a demon gang that was terrorizing Sunnydale and now is leaving. And that the group killed the leader, or that Buffy did. Anya thinks that Buffy's broken. Willow argues she's disoriented, probably from being tortured in some hell dimension. They don't know how long she was there. It could have been years. And then Willow says, it's not something you just get over. Oh my God, what if she never gets over it? And Anya answers, and you think of this now? Tara asks if Buffy could be dangerous. And at 1 minute 16 seconds, the scene cuts to Buffy and Dawn standing in the dark in front of their house. Buffy's still in that black dress she was buried in. Her eyes are narrowed, and she looks confused and upset as Dawn tells her she's okay now, and we cut to credits. 
At 2 minutes 30 seconds inside the house, Buffy winces each time Dawn turns on a light, though it's still pretty dim in there. Uh, Dawn's not throwing on all the overheads, and Buffy's first line of the episode is, it's different. Dawn tells her, yes, a little, there's some furniture rearranged, Willow and Tara moved in, and they see Willow's computer at the end of the dining room table. As Dawn is talking, Buffy walks away and goes upstairs. The scene cuts to a brightly lit bathroom. Buffy's now wearing a collared white shirt that's open as Dawn cleans dirt off her neck. Her hair is combed and in a ponytail. She looks more like herself, except that her expression is still flat. Dawn jokes about how Joyce used to say, wash that neck or plant potatoes. Buffy doesn't react, and Dawn says, yeah, I never thought it was that funny either. She sees the blood on Buffy's knuckles and tells her she'll take care of that and Buffy walks off again to look at the bedrooms she winces again when Dawn turns on the light in Joyce's room Buffy asks Willow and Tara and Dawn says yes it's the biggest room and then Buffy starts to walk away again Dawn asks her to stop can't they just sit down and talk but Buffy wants to know what else is different and I see this as piling on for Buffy she already thought in the last episode that this world was hell now she's home but it's not the home the way she remembers I see Willow and Tara moving into Joyce's bedroom as symbolic of course it makes sense and Joyce was gone before Buffy died but I'm guessing for Buffy this doubles down on that she can't ever go home to the home where she really felt safe and loved and cared for because that's when Joyce was there and Joyce is not coming back so when she asks what else is different Dawn says do you mean about the house or and then goes on to tell her it's so weird that Giles just left that morning and that they'll call him Buffy starts to ask something else, but she doesn't finish her sentence. She's clearly struggling to find the words and finally says, what will you say to him? She's uneasy when she hears someone at the door, but Don says it's just Spike, and we hear him call out for Don, really angry that she disappeared on him. Normally, before this point in the episode, we would see a story spark or inciting incident. That is the moment that gets the main plot rolling. And in most stories, it's at 10% through or earlier so that we make sure we get the, uh, keep the story moving, get the plot set off. In this episode, 10% was about when Dawn noticed Buffy's knuckles and tried to button her shirt. That doesn't seem to set off anything. If I had to place a story spark for this episode, for Buffy, it's probably seeing the house, going into the house and seeing everything different, which is very early. But I have some questions about this episode as to what the main plot is, which I'll get into. Spike is still ranting at Don, calling up the stairs as Buffy slowly steps down behind Don, a few feet behind, and Don says, Spike, 
look. He glances at Buffy, but doesn't take in what he's seeing and just says he's seen the bloody bot before. He didn't think she could be patched up. And then as he's talking, he stops and his eyes widen in shock, in wonder. Buffy now for the first time has her eyes I don't know how else to put it, but they're open. Before this, she was still squinting against the light, but now she meets Spike's gaze. Dawn tells him Buffy's been through a lot with the death, but she thinks that she's okay. As Dawn says that, Buffy suddenly looks down and buttons her shirt, which is open to about midway. Don asks Spike if he's okay because he can barely speak, and he asks Don what she did. She tells him nothing. Spike notices Buffy's hands and right away knows that she clawed her way out of the coffin. He tells Don to get bandages, and he leads Buffy to the couch. He's very gentle, and he sits across from her, holds her hand, and he's very quiet, and she asks how long she was gone. And Spike says, 147 days yesterday, uh, 148 today, except today doesn't count, does it? How long was it for you where you were? And Buffy says, longer. Dawn returns, but the others burst in the door at the same time. They're exclaiming over Buffy being there, asking if she's okay. They stand in a group facing Buffy, who's still sitting on the couch, and Dawn also faces the group and says, you knew she was back? How did you know? Spike walks out without a word. Anya asks Buffy if she's a zombie, and Dawn tells them all to back off, asks what they did, and asks if Buffy will be okay, clearly worried. Buffy says she's okay, I think just two words, and very muted, and they ask more, and she says she doesn't want to talk about what it was like. The others argue over what to get her, pizza, what to do for her. Dawn tells them to back off, let Buffy tell them what she needs. And there is a shot of the four friends silent looking down at Buffy. And she stands and says she just wants to sleep. Tara says that's good. Sleep is good. Willow, smiling, clearly waiting for something, says, but Buffy, be happy. We got you out. We really did it. And Buffy says, tired. Anya says, well, yeah, the jet lag from hell has got to be, you know, jet lag from hell. Now, this exchange between Buffy and Willow could be a story spark. It highlights what I see as the main conflict of the episode, Willow wants Buffy to be okay, to be happy that she's back, and Buffy clearly is not. So once again, I see Willow as the protagonist here. She is the one actively pursuing something, and Buffy is pushing back by not responding in the way Willow wants. So Buffy is the antagonist, either in the main plot or in a subplot between Willow and Buffy. Dawn assures Buffy that her room is still hers when Buffy asks, and Buffy goes upstairs. And Willow defensively says to the others, well, she's she's fine, normal. She used to go to bed all the time. We're now nearing a quarter way through the episode. Usually around there, we see the first major plot turn that comes from outside the protagonist, spins the story in a new direction, and raises the stakes. 
Anya and Xander leave the house. It's about 10 minutes, 22 seconds in, talking about whether Buffy will get back to normal or not. Spike stands by a large tree, his head resting against it. His back is to Xander and Anya. He wipes his eyes as Xander asks what he's doing. And Xander goes right up to Spike and says he hopes Spike's not going to start his quote-unquote little obsession now that Buffy's back. Spike spins around and pins Xander to the tree. I did wonder about this because Spike does supposedly still have that chip in his head. I had canoned it that he's not meaning to hurt Xander. He's just pushing him up against the tree. I did see something on the Buffy wiki where uh, they said, if you look really close, you see Spike wins as he does it. I'm not sure that's consistent with what we've seen of the chip before, but it's such a great moment regardless. And Spike says, you didn't tell me. You brought her back and you didn't tell me. And Xander says, well, now you know. Spike responds, I work beside you all summer. And Xander is a little awkward here, maybe does feel bad because he says, we didn't tell you. It was just, we didn't, okay? And Spike tells them he figured it out. Maybe Xander hasn't, but Willow knew Buffy could come back wrong, so wrong that they'd have to send her back. And Spike would never let her do that. And that's why Willow shut him out. And Xander says, oh, Willow would never do that, meaning never try the spell if she knew it could go so badly. And Spike says, oh, is that right? Xander tells Spike he's just covering and asks him, wasn't it the happiest moment of his existence when he saw Buffy? Spike is having none of it. He gets on his motorcycle, I guess the one that he stole last time from the demons, and says, that's the thing about magic. There's always consequences, always. A bit of foreshadowing for the episode from Spike also stating one of those basic storytelling rules that there needs to be uh, effort when you use magic or a price or a consequence just as there is with anything else we do in the world. If your characters can just get what they want by doing a spell and there's no consequence, it makes life too easy for them and your story becomes un interesting. Willow joins Tara in the bedroom. She's just called Giles. He's coming back. Tara can see that Willow is worried about everything. Willow tries to insist it's all good, but Tara assures her that here with Tara alone, Willow doesn't have to be brave. She can share her fears. And Willow admits she's not unworried. They talk about when Angel came back from hell that Buffy told them he was wild like an animal. Tara reassures Willow that Buffy's not like that, but Willow's still uneasy. Tara holds her and says she thinks some of it might be that they assumed crash positions. They weren't ready for the spell to actually work. But Willow says if things did go right, wouldn't Buffy be so happy they brought her out? And Tara quietly says, you thought she'd say thanks be more grateful. And Willow responds, would I be a terrible person if I said yes? Tara tells her, give Buffy time, she'll get there. And this feels authentic and human to me that Tara gives Willow the space to say the thing that Willow probably feels a bit petty about. She, she must have mixed feelings. She wants to make it all about 
Buffy, and yet she has done this amazing thing that she did for Buffy. She feels she saved Buffy from hell and is both concerned about Buffy and a little upset that there's no big celebration, there's no recognition or thanks that she did this really hard and scary thing. Buffy sits in her darkened bedroom on the edge of her bed. Then she goes to look at photos of herself and her friends and all their faces turn into skulls. We're about 16 minutes through, so about a third of the way through the story, and that major plot turn I mentioned hasn't quite happened. This could be a turn of sorts because now we see there is something more going on than Buffy just coming back not quite herself and given Spike's warning this could be that turn but it also could be just something else wrong with Buffy. In a moment though we're going to get a, a clarification that there is a monster a demon involved. I think this is part of the pacing issue I have with Afterlife as a standalone episode though because so far it has mainly been okay this is Buffy reacting from being raised from the dead and her friends reacting to Buffy's reaction. Buffy squeezes her eyes shut, opens them again. Now the photos are fine and we cut to a commercial, which suggests to me maybe that is the end of act one officially. But now when we come back, we will really raise the stakes, which is what that one quarter turn often does because in Tara and Willow's bedroom they're awakened by glass shattering over their heads and Buffy stands before them and in a low but intense voice asks do they know what they did she calls them bitches she says quote did you cut the throat did you pat its head end quote she throws and breaks something else she makes more allusions to Willow killing the fawn though Tara won't know that asks about the blood staining their hands says I know what you did Willow snaps on the light and there's no Buffy. Tara also notices there's no glass. So nothing actually broke. They look into Buffy's room and she's asleep and seems peaceful. She's under the covers. Back in their bedroom, they conclude it can't be a dream since they both experienced it. Tara asks what it was talking about. Did Willow understand? And Willow claims she didn't. There are more sounds and they look at the walls and it looks like there's something moving under the wallpaper and it seems to exit the room. And they worry about whether it's after Buffy. We cut to Xander's apartment. Anya's trying to get him to wake up because she can't sleep. Finally, the phone rings. It's Willow waking him immediately. And Anya gets out of bed as Willow tells him what happened. She says it was like Buffy was possessed and at that moment Anya returns with a butcher knife laughing this high-pitched eerie laugh and cuts her face then collapses on the floor. A short personal update. I tend to get a bit blue during January, February, March, sometimes April, because in Chicago where I live, there are often many, many gray days in a row. So I decided to take a basic drawing class. In addition to 
making sure I go and interact with a small group of people I didn't already know. So I'm doing something different socially. I also wanted to do something creative that has nothing to do with words. Something completely for fun, just because I feel like doing it, not to put it out in the world or sell it. Nothing business related and nothing word related because I write and my law practice to the extent I still practice is mainly about uh, written legal analysis. So I thought this would be would be totally different, nothing to do with writing or story structure. It is an experience to try to learn something I know nothing about. Didn't even know what most of the things on the art supply list were. It turns out in some ways there is something in this that relates to story structure because the instructor put out shapes for us, cubes, cones, globes set out on a table and told us to pick about a third of it and, and draw them on our paper. And this was the first time I really didn't feel so much like I was struggling and here's why. Because he told us something that those of you who know anything about art, I'm sure already know. He said, before we started, draw lines on our sketch pad, one on each side, then one in the middle. Um, so divide it in half, vertical down the middle, and then vertical down the middle of each half. So we're dividing the page on the sketch pad into quarters. And then he showed us how to look at the shapes on the table and figure out where they should be, where they fell in those quarters and it helps with perspective so that you don't start drawing your first shape and maybe it's too big. So by the time you get to what's the end of the real life shapes, now you're having to squish the last shapes in to fit just like I look at quarters of stories. And it struck me particularly now because I've been immersed in rewriting my latest novel and I rewrite based on quarters. And I had just finished the third quarter, realized it was both a bit too long and didn't have enough momentum. So I went into the fourth quarter, took a vital scene and moved it into the third quarter, then cut out some things that weren't moving the story and got it where the third quarter was the same length, roughly in terms of word count as the first and second quarter. And making that cut also shortened the fourth quarter, which had been too long. So I was essentially doing the same thing of in visually making sure that the shapes would fit and be the right size for each quarter. And by doing it that way, you get a full drawing where everything is proportionate. And that's essentially what I do when I rewrite my novels. Anyway, it was so much fun. It was so relaxing. I really enjoyed engaging in this other type of creativity. And turns out it gave me a little more excitement about the revisions I was doing. These are the first appearances of this demon or monster of the episode. This demon never quite worked for me. And here's why. Monsters and demons 
that you create don't need to follow rules that uh, other writers have set down. Let's say we have exactly this type of demon in some other story. You don't have to follow someone else's rules, but your monster, your demon, your evildoer, anything supernatural or magical in a universe needs to follow the rules of the story, the rules that you lay out. Here, the first time we know for sure about the demon. Well, first, it it makes those photos look different for Buffy. So it can create illusions. Then in Willow and Tara's room, we hear the glass shatter, but there isn't any glass there. So it's, it's an illusion of sound. It's an illusion of sight. And then we see Buffy, but though Willow says to Xander, it seemed like she was possessed, that doesn't from what we see as the audience seem to be the case because Willow snaps on the light. Buffy is standing right there. She snaps on the light and there's nothing. No Buffy. They go to look at Buffy in her room and she's under the covers. There wasn't time for this demon to just zip out of the room the instant Willow turned on the light and then put Buffy back under the cover so that she's sleeping peacefully and soundly. And in fact, when we see it again with Anya, Anya doesn't just disappear. She collapses on the ground. Now, so far, maybe it's consistent. We don't know the rules just yet. And Anya slicing her face, we'll find out in a moment, did not, the real Anya does not have her face sliced. So, Unclear what all the rules are here, but that's what we've got so far. And later there are some things that seem inconsistent about the rules. So keep that in mind as we go forward. The scene cuts to the friends sitting in the backyard in the sun in the morning. And Willow says it's not a traditional haunting. It's not limited to one place. And there's no dead person. And Tara says, not anymore. Anya now bets it's a hitchhiker, a demon or other thing that sees someone getting out of hell and hitches a ride. And Anya says they shouldn't have brought Buffy back. Willow says, no, it's okay, they'll kill the beastie and all will be good. And Xander asks if they can kill it. Now Buffy approaches and says, this is 20 minutes, five seconds in, we killing something? She's in jeans and a black button-down shirt, her hair uh, in a ponytail again, but it it looks even neater than last night, much more Buffy-like. She's holding a cup of coffee, and she's a little bit more animated than the day before, plus she is responding in longer sentences. When Tara asks how she's feeling, Buffy looks at her but ignores the question and asks what they're killing. So this is that first hint that Buffy is hiding things from her friends, or at least she's, if not hiding, she's avoiding. She's unwilling to tell them how she feels. And Anya says, a demon you brought back from hell with you. Willow glares at her and Buffy just says, oh. Buffy tells them about the photos turning to skulls. She pauses in the middle of her sentences a couple times, seeming to lose her train of thought, but picks up again as if her brain is working slow or is super fatigued. Another sign that Buffy is not right. We've seen quite a few so far from her not responding to Dawn, walking away from Dawn, and now having trouble completing thoughts or sentences. But she goes on, they were dead. I I mean, we were dead, like um, dead bodies, but, but then they were okay. So I just, you know, figured it was me. I, 
I was going crazy. Anya says, maybe you're going crazy from hell. And then she says, no, you're fine. At 21 minutes, 13 seconds, which is right about the middle of the episode, the others tell Buffy they're so glad she's back. They'll fix the haunting and still have her back, which is wonderful. And despite those words sounding very happy, they're all very muted because clearly they are looking to Buffy for some reassurance that she's okay, or at least maybe not looking to her for it or expecting it from her, but it is coloring how they feel. And Buffy once again, doesn't respond to that implied question. She just says, we should get to work. Now, right around here, typically we'll see a midpoint major commitment by the protagonist or major reversal. If we see Willow as the protagonist, this is a, it's hard to say major reversal for her. She, it's a doubling down on what she has already experienced that they keep saying, it's so wonderful, you're back, Buffy. And Buffy is not responding. It is becoming more clear that Buffy, at least for right now, isn't happy. It's not all kittens and puppies and rainbows, as I think Tara or Willow says at some point. So it, it's a sort of doubling down on the reversal for Willow. And likewise, if we see Buffy as the protagonist, also somewhat of a doubling down on the pressure she's feeling from her friends wanting a certain reaction from her. But this isn't as strong a midpoint as we typically see. At 21 minutes, 30 seconds in the library, Anya's looking for possible hitchhikers. Well, all of them are. Dawn thinks she'd prefer small bone eaters over large bone eaters until Anya tells her that that doesn't refer to the size of the demons, but what they like to eat. Small bone eaters prefer creatures with small bones, like Dawn. I love this line. There's quite a number of lines I enjoy in this episode. No surprise, it's written by Jane Espenson. All the Buffy writers are are good at these funny, quippy lines, but I feel like Jane Espenson's are often the most fun. Willow's struggling a bit. She doesn't know if they should focus on how to kill the potential hitchhikers they already found or try to find more hitchhikers. Maybe they should split the work up. And Buffy, who's sitting alone at the end of the table, says abruptly that she misses Giles. So again, the friends are at one end of the table. Buffy alone is at the other. And when she says that, Willow takes it as an implied criticism, though she doesn't speak defensively, but she says Giles will be back in a couple days and she knows that she's kind of a poor substitute, but they'll get it done. This is a little more tension between Willow and Buffy, and Buffy says she should patrol and she heads for the door. They offer to go with. She says she'd rather go alone. Dawn, who Buffy hasn't even glanced at as she decides to leave, says, you should go. I'll be safe here with the others. Don't worry about me. Buffy just leaves. And then Dawn smiles and her eyes roll and show only the whites of her eyes. And we cut to a commercial. That could be a major midpoint reversal there because now Dawn is directly affected by this demon. But it feels more like a progression through the friends. 
Buffy meanders through the graveyard, and we cut back right away to Anya coming into the magic box with a tray of coffee. She says how she found a 24-hour coffee place that used to be a bookstore, then became books and coffee, and now it's just coffee. It's like evolution without the getting better part. And it was something to hear that now, because when that... Uh, episode aired that was certainly happening and now so many bookstores are gone completely so Anya and the writers rightly pointed out that trend though I though I do enjoy the coffee places as well for the hot chocolate which is what Anya gives Dawn she's handing out coffees and says and a hot chocolate for Dawn she's too young for coffee and Dawn the whites of her eyes only showing says idiot and Anya says you can have my coffee The timing of this doesn't quite work for me because Buffy's already in the graveyard. Sure, Buffy is fast, but we see her kind of meandering. It doesn't look like she ran to the graveyard as fast as she could. And Anya was in the room when Buffy left and she left and she got coffee. So has Dawn been possessed by the demon this whole time? And no one has noticed that only the whites of her eyes show. Anyway, Dawn calls them stupid children, says, did they think the blood wouldn't reach them? And then she breathes flames and the books catch fire and Dawn collapses. Xander puts out the books. Dawn's still unconscious. And now we see something under the floorboards or the tile heading away and it seems slightly bigger. So this is something that makes me question the rules for this monster. Xander had to put out the flames. So unlike the breaking of the glass which didn't leave any shards the flames are there so there is more of a physical effect dawn collapses though like anya did so that is consistent maybe the demon's power is growing and i did pull just so that uh, you don't just have to take my word for it about rules and demons a book called writing Horror, a handbook by the Horror Writers Association. Now, this was published in 1997. It's been sitting on my shelf for quite a while, but I don't think this has changed. This is from an essay, No More Silver Mirrors, The Monster in Our Times by Karen E. Taylor. And it is on page 152 of the book. And Taylor says, there must always be inner rules for each monster that are quote unquote true if he is to be recognizable to the reader. Decide within the context of your story which rules are basic to your creature and stick with them throughout. Consistency might be quote the hobgoblin of little minds unquote but it is the spine of an open quote old monster made new close quote story. If your vampire feeds on souls instead of blood you can't have him vary his diet halfway through. If your werewolf must see the full moon to affect his transformation, you can't have him growing hairy in a windowless room. The readers will cry, quote, foul, unquote, and rightly so. I can't help but comment on that, the use of he as the general pronoun. Very striking, showing that language has evolved a bit since 1997. Buffy did play with all of these myths, with the werewolf myth, for instance. At one point, Oz doesn't need the full moon to change. Well, he doesn't from the beginning. They give him three nights to change, but then he doesn't need the moon's influence at all. But that is explained within the structure of the story. It doesn't just happen and get ignored. So back to Afterlife. 
The friends see the demon leave and Anya muses on where it went and says, quote, evil things have plans. They have things to do, end quote. A great segue to Spike, who at 24 minutes, 49 seconds is pacing his crypt. Clearly in the grips of deep emotion, he punches the wall. His hand starts bleeding. Then he hears someone enter above and climbs up through that trap door with a weapon only to find Buffy. Buffy notices Spike's hand is hurt. He says hers is too, and she moves it behind her back. This is another subtle movement by Buffy that gives us some hints to what's going on in her head, though I've never been clear exactly what that is if she just doesn't want a reminder of having to claw her way out of the grave or if she's embarrassed about it. Spike comments that Willow's pretty strong and jokes it's hard to get a good night's death around here. He once again sits across from her and says that he remembers what he said, the promise to protect Dawn, and goes on, if I'd have done that, even if I didn't make it, you wouldn't have had to jump. But I want you to know I did save you, not when it counted, of course, but after that, every night after that. I'd see it all again, do something different, faster, more clever, you know, dozens of times, lots of different ways. Every night I save you. So very human that reliving something in our minds that we can't change and and we so desperately wish that we could. The scene cuts to Tara and Xander looking out the window and talking about how it feels to see sunrise when you've stayed up all night. Tara says she prefers seeing it first thing in the morning when she's just gotten up. This way, quote, it's like I'm seeing it from the wrong side, end quote. Xander now asks her about the consequences for the spell and asks, could someone have known it might have happened? Tara right away defends Willow. Willow wouldn't do the spell if it could go terribly wrong. And Xander says, I know, I know, backing up quickly, hands in the air. And Willow says, Tomogenesis. She's been looking at the books still and explains that they didn't let the demon out. They created it by doing the spell. And it's like a price for getting Buffy back. The world doesn't like you getting this amazing gift for free. So if you get Buffy, you also get the demon. And Anya says technically that's a gift with purchase. Willow says they can't see the demon because it's out of phase with this dimension. It doesn't have a body, so it's borrowing theirs or manifesting copies of them like Buffy. This I see as an attempt to explain that seeming inconsistency in what we saw when it was Buffy, but then Buffy's actually in bed versus Anya and Dawn who collapsed. And I guess the reason that they did it with Buffy that way is the writers did not want Buffy to know yet that there was a demon. They wanted her to find that out in the morning. That is an attempt to to explain the rules, although it doesn't explain why the demon would, would make that choice. It doesn't really give us a reason other than it works for the plot that the demon manifested a copy one time and possessed them other times. Dawn catches on right away that 
if they send the demon away, it's like the spell didn't exist. And Dawn is quite upset because that would mean Buffy never came back. And she says, if you think you can give her back to me and then take her away again. And she goes on, you can't mess with people's lives that way. Which is a nice way to hit the point that Willow did not perhaps think through the consequences. I mean, we don't know. Maybe she did and still concluded, thinking her friend was in hell, that it was worth it. If once every two weeks is not enough for you to hear Buffy in the Art of Story, you can get more content and support the show at the same time by becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lilly. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. You'll also get early access to each regular episode. You'll get to hear it at least two days early. I just recorded this month's bonus episode called Buffy Rises from the Dead, Bargaining Part 2 through Afterlife, where I go through the story from Buffy's point of view, starting with her waking up in that coffin. It really helped me sort out why there's some unevenness in the plot of, or the plots of the uh, Bargaining Part 2 and afterlife and where Buffy's story fits and where she is clearly the protagonist. You'll also get access if you join to all the back bonus episodes. There are lots of them there. Another one from season five is God's Guilt and the Way to the World, where I talk about what Ben and Glory as characters say about gods in the Buffyverse, including the role of emotion for gods versus humans and specifically for heroes like like Buffy. There's also a breakdown of the pilot of Angel, the series, and a comparison of how Willow and Jonathan, remember him, deal with magic in the earlier seasons. At the $1 level on Patreon, you'll also get super simple story structure worksheets. And at the $5 level, in addition to the worksheets, you'll get an ebook edition of the book Buffy and the Art of Story Season 1. So if you missed that season of the podcast and would like to read it to catch up or you just want to revisit it, you can get that. And if you're a writer looking for more help with your story, personalized help, at the $20 level, there are some options to get a free critique from me of your story structure or discounts on my critiquing services. Plus, you'll be helping support Buffy and the Art of Story along with the other patrons and ensure it continues to the end of season seven and beyond. And a special thank you to everyone who already supports the show. It means so much to me and helps cover the costs of hosting the podcast. You can join at Patreon patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lilly. They all reassure Dawn they'll find another way. And then Willow jumps in. She found something else. It's temporary. The demon will dissipate because it can't live on this plane unless it kills the subject of the original spell. Buffy. So this is another rule issue because as we'll see later, particularly, the demon seems to be growing more 
powerful. Um, even earlier, it it instead of just an illusion of fire, this fire was real enough to burn the book. So it seems like it's getting stronger. And you would think if it's going to dissipate because it can't exist on this plane, it would be getting weaker. Now I see uh, one of the stronger turns in the story. We're a little before the three-quarter point in the episode, and that point is where we typically see another turn that takes the story in a different direction and sometimes further raises the stakes. And that clearly happens here because Xander looks up and says, thanks for the tip. He's been possessed, and now the demon knows it needs to kill Buffy. Not a super smart demon, because if it stayed quiet, it might have succeeded at this. At 31 minutes, 18 seconds, Buffy enters the darkened Summer's house, and wispy cloud vapors follow, and we cut to a commercial. So great hook there. Upstairs, Buffy looks at her friend's photos, and a spooky voice says, you don't belong here. Now the wisps are coming together in a uh, much larger wispy cloud. At first, I thought, okay, it's manifesting an illusion, which we've seen it do before, but now it punches Buffy, which also breaks those rules because supposedly it can't have a body here. It can only manifest copies or use their bodies, but now it apparently can do things physically. Raising the question, well, why didn't just use this wispy cloud body to throw vases and uh, could have really cut Anya's face for real because it's able to have a physical effect. And this is also what I meant about it seems to be getting stronger if it couldn't do that before and now it can. Buffy goes flying across the room. She does get up. She swings at it, but she can't connect with it, though it physically can hit her, something else that is not explained. The demon keeps saying demoralizing things to her about not belonging there, that it isn't her home. It squeezes her around the middle. It has gotten bigger and bigger, and it's almost like it's doing this uh, Heimlich maneuver on her and trying to squeeze the breath out of her. Dawn and Anya are in the car with Xander, yelling at him to drive faster. Anya says he's like a snail, a snail that's driving very slowly. Xander reassures Dawn that Willow and Tara are doing a spell and that it won't send Buffy back. It's to make the demon corporeal so Buffy can fight it. And this scene, too, feels a little slow. It's clearly there just to tell us what the point of this spell is. At 33 minutes, 27 seconds, Tara and Willow sit cross-legged facing each other. There's candles lit. They hold hands. And we cut between them doing this spell and Buffy struggling to fight the demon. At one point, she's knocked on the floor again. She looks exhausted, but she's still trying, and she grabs an axe, swings at the demon, which doesn't help. Xander and Anya run into the house with Dawn. They're in the doorway of her bedroom and she yells at them to take Dawn away. Willow and Tara are still speaking the spell together, but now Tara keeps saying the words, but Willow stops. She's bathed in a shaft of light. There's eerie music. She lets go of Tara's hands. Her hands drop. It doesn't seem purposeful. Looks up, opens her eyes, and her pupils and irises go black. And Willow says, solid. At 34 minutes, 36 seconds in Buffy's room, the demon turns solid. It's much bigger than Buffy, and at first it's winning, but she grabs the axe, or I think it's a scythe, and chops its head off. So for the 
plot or subplot, however you see it, of Buffy or the gang fighting the demon, that was the climax. And, and I think that would have to be a subplot because it doesn't take up all that much of the episode, really. It's from about 20 minutes through to now about 35 minutes through. But the opposing forces, Buffy and the demon, have their final confrontation and Buffy prevails. And the rest would be the falling action section of the plot, but there really isn't any for that other than Dawn says something about, oh, I guess that's the kind of thing I'm not supposed to see. And that part of the story is over. Which is why I think the main plot is more about Buffy and Willow. We cut to a sunny morning. Dawn leaves the house. Buffy's now dressed in a pretty flowing skirt and a tank top. Her hair is hanging long and wavy and loose, looking more relaxed. She has a more pleasant expression, and she hurries out after Dawn to give her a bag lunch she packed. Nice callback to the Buffy bot making all those sandwiches and giving us a little hint that Buffy herself might be feeling lighter or at least she is acting like it. Dawn is really touched that Buffy did that and she doesn't say it but especially considering Buffy's just been walking away from her or walking out without concern for her. Buffy smiles, tells her she needs to get to school now. Quote, you know what they say, those of us who fail history doomed to repeat it in summer school, end quote. So she's engaging in a little humor as well. Dawn hugs Buffy and asks if she's okay. And Buffy says she's going to start charging money for everyone who asks her that. Dawn acknowledges, yes, they've been asking a lot, but it's just because they care about her. Everything was so bad when she was gone. It'll be better now. Now that everyone can see Buffy being happy, that's all they want. So now we get to the climax of that emotional plot, which we can see as Buffy versus Willow or Willow versus Buffy. I think it is more Willow, as I noted, because Willow is the one actively pursuing this goal in terms of that plot of wanting to get a certain reaction from Buffy. At the magic box, once again, all four of the friends are grouped together, looking at Buffy, who stands alone facing them. She awkwardly talks about how they brought her back and she should have thanked them sooner she says I was in a I was in hell and she says she can't think too much about what it was like she felt the world abandon her and then suddenly quote you guys did what you did end quote and Tara says it was Willow she knew what to do and Buffy says okay so you did that and the world came rushing back Thank you. You guys gave me the world. I can't tell you what it means to me. And Willow says, you're welcome. She looks happy. She hugs Buffy. Xander joins the hug. And as the audience, we see what her two friends can't. Buffy in the middle, but her face, she squeezes her eyes shut. And it's clear that she's not all that happy. When she says they gave her the world and, quote, I can't tell you what it means to me, unquote, it is another clue that Buffy is holding back and avoiding. But this was the climax, that final confrontation between Buffy and Willow. Willow, as protagonist, prevails. She finally gets what she wanted from Buffy, a thank you and an acknowledgement of what she did. And it is a loss for Buffy because as we'll find out, she had to lie to give Willow what she wants. 
At 37 minutes, 54 seconds, the falling action starts. This is the part of the story where the writers tie up loose ends, resolve any subplots that aren't resolved, and in a continuing series, sow some seeds for the rest of the season. Now we find out why Buffy was so muted and sad the whole episode. She steps out of the magic box. It's sunny, but Spike is sitting there in the shadow. So this is in the alley. And he says he was going to come inside, but came over a bit queasy when he heard her and the super friends having a moment. Buffy says she wanted a little time alone and sits near him. He tries to leave to give her space, but he can't because of the angle of the sun. He has to stay in the shadows. And Buffy says, it's okay. I can be alone with you here. Spike says, thanks ever so. He sees her downcast eyes, her body language, and asks if she's okay. And unlike the other questions from everyone, it feels like Spike is asking because he's concerned about her and he's not like the others needing reassurance, needing her to say she's okay. But she does say she's good and he tells her if she's in pain or she needs anything or he can do anything and Buffy says you can't. Spike says, well, I haven't been to a hell dimension just of late, but I do know a thing or two about torment. And Buffy tells him the truth and says, I was happy. Wherever I was, I was happy, at peace. I knew that everyone I cared about was all right. I knew it. And she continues that time um, didn't mean anything and says, nothing had form, but I was still me, you know, and I was warm, and I was loved, and I was finished complete. She says she doesn't understand theology or dimensions or any of that, but quote, I think I was in heaven and now I'm not. I was torn out of there, pulled out by my friends. Everything here is hard and bright and violent. Everything I feel, everything I touch. This is hell. Just getting through the next moment and the one after that, knowing what I've lost. She looks at Spike and then she stands and walks into the sunlight, but she stops to say one last thing, not quite looking back at him, but angling her head a little bit toward him and says, they can never know, never. And she leaves. That is the end of the episode. Why can Buffy tell Spike the truth? I see a few reasons. One, he wasn't part of the spell to bring her back. So he's not responsible for dragging her back into this world. So there's less weight on telling him that. It's not like she's uh, berating him. She's not going to make him feel bad because he didn't choose to do it. And I think that's also why Spike's asking her if she's okay is more of a genuine concern for her. The other friends are concerned too, but Willow in particular wants Buffy to say she's okay because Willow wants to be thanked. She wants a celebration. And Dawn needs Buffy to be okay because she's vulnerable and she needs her sister. Spike is not asking Buffy for anything. He doesn't need a certain response from her, so there's no pressure. And finally, Spike is a dark character. He has a very dark side. She's not afraid of upsetting or scaring him. Perhaps also she doesn't care how he feels or if she hurts him. Personally, I don't think that's it, at least at this point. 
I feel like it's it's more the other things that Buffy really can be alone with Spike. She can be herself with Spike. So that is it for this episode, other than foreshadowing. If you're not sticking around for foreshadowing and spoilers, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for the next episode, season six, episode four, Flooded, where Buffy struggles to deal with the day-to-day issues like debt, house repairs, and getting a loan, and three humans team up to torment her using magic. And we're back for foreshadowing and spoilers. Buffy walking away from Don repeatedly, leaving the magic box without seeing if Don will be okay. I mean, she knows Don will be okay. She's there with her friends, but it clearly doesn't cross her mind. Neither of those things put Don in danger, but they sow the seeds of the season-long arc between Buffy and Don. Or I should say add to the seeds because it really started when Buffy asks if she's in hell and Dawn says, no, you're home, you're here with me. Dawn will feel so abandoned throughout the season and and Buffy will repeatedly not be there for Dawn, not be aware of what's going on with Dawn. So this makes that more clear. And it's understandable how sad Dawn feels. She thought getting Buffy back would make everything okay she's happy her sister's back but it's not at all what she imagined and her disappointment and her isolation will only grow through season six this is a huge change from season five in the beginning of season five when we first saw dawn and buffy and she was introduced into buffy's life buffy was aggravated with her she found her irritating but she definitely paid attention to her and noticed her and then as buffy understood what was going on she not only protected Dawn and cared about her because she was the key, she bonded with Dawn. She felt Dawn was part of herself. She says the best part of herself. And now this season, she's so disconnected. That moment when Willow lets go of Tara's hands is so symbolic of the coming split between her and Tara. And of course, the moment where she looks up, her pupils turn black, and she says, solid, are all hints of Dark Willow to come and of how powerful Willow is because that moment when she says that, that's when it happens. And I feel like this tells us Willow could have done this spell without Tara. We know she can do a lot of spells without Tara, but this is a pretty powerful one. And joining with Tara has brought her strength. She's learned from Tara, but now not only surpassed Tara, but has gone to a place Tara doesn't go. It is Willow. She's in that shaft of light alone. And both Spike and Xander in this episode raise how much Willow knew about what could go wrong. And we will see Giles directly confront that and say pretty much what Spike did, that things could have gone horribly wrong and made things worse. Willow responds something like worse than dead. But yes, both Spike and Giles tell us, yes, it could have been worse. Willow's comment about being a poor substitute for Giles, but they'll get it done, seeds her discontent and foreshadows her discontent with being treated like she is lesser than Giles, a poor substitute. 
shows that conflict between her and Giles where she has done this amazing thing and feels like Giles doesn't recognize that where Giles comes from a place of seeing her as as irresponsible and reckless and Willow's feeling of being unrecognized not getting gratitude or thanks will continue because yes Buffy has thanked her but it's not like Buffy will seem overjoyed to be back and Giles will definitely, I think, cut away any of the good feeling Willow had. And we'll also see her really push back against Giles and get more hints of dark feelings. There is also a comment on Twitter that uh, does some foreshadowing or talks about foreshadowing. This is from Roberta Lip, the co-host of the They Coined It podcast and future co-host of a Mrs. Maisel podcast that she and I are starting to record together. I will let you know when that starts. And Roberta says, in reference to A Bargaining Part 2, where I talked about the friends splitting up, and she says, this came out of your mouth that Xander would carry Willow because he's stronger. Isn't that how the season will end? And yes, I did not catch that at all, that in the end, Xander is there for her. And in a way, he does carry Willow and get her past that very dark place where she's in and she's ready to destroy the world. So awesome catch, Roberta. And thank you for the comment. Buffy going to see Spike in the crypt. All the Buffy Spike scenes foreshadow the good parts of their relationship. He thinks she's there to hold him to account, but to me, it reads that she came to the crypt because she needed relief from that pressure from her friends from the intensity of them wanting her to tell them she's okay and even her deep sadness she feels more alone with them every scene in this episode I'm I'm pretty sure she is on one side they are right on the other side and Spike those are the only times she sits with someone face to face in the first scene with him, in the scene in the crypt, holding hands. She is connected in a way that she can't be with her friends. And then at the end, she sits next to him and she tells him the truth. And I've already said why I think that is. And I also think that's why she went to the crypt. Maybe Buffy doesn't really want to be alone. She does want some company in this dark place. And Spike can sit with her in the dark. He can be there he is not asking her for anything and even when he tells her every time I saved you he isn't asking her to forgive him he doesn't say please forgive me he just expresses his sadness his sorrow at not being able to be there and that makes her line perfect about it's okay I can be alone with you here now Spike doesn't really take that as a compliment he says thanks ever so but he doesn't know at that point why it's so hard for Buffy to be with her friends so that's a seed for Buffy and Spike the fact that they will have more of a relationship a deepening relationship and all also, that Buffy will be drawn more and more to Spike and will be more isolated
hid from her friends. That's it for foreshadowing and for this episode. Thank you again for listening. And a special thank you to the patrons who support the show. Come back in two weeks for the next episode, Flooded, where the basement floods in the summer's house, calling for extensive repairs, and we see the trio for the first time. If you enjoyed this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story, please rate or review it wherever you listen to podcasts, tell a friend about it, or share it on social media. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly, that's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y, or email me at BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2023. All rights reserved.